This podcast is brought to you by Fear Free, the initiative that takes the pet out of petrified and puts treat into treatment. Learn more at fearfreepets.com. This is the Fear Free podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Dale, and today we're discussing osteoarthritis pain in dogs, the art and value of OA screening using Fear Free principles with Dr. Ross H. Palmer, Diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons. Dr. Palmer is with the Chief Orthopedic Service at Colorado State University and has a clinical focus in traumatology, minimally invasive surgery, limb deformity correction, and conditions of the knee. He's a fear-free certified professional, and his research is directed toward disease injury of the canine and human knee. Interesting, Dr. Palmer. You can diagnose me before we're done. Cartilage repair and bone healing. He has research collaborators with Harvard Children's Hospital, the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University, the University of Colorado, as well as University of Kansas, as well as National Institutes of Health and National Aeronautics and Space Administration and numerous human and veterinary corporations. He's a board member of the Veterinary Orthopedic Society, the North American Veterinary Conference, and the Veterinary Surgery Journal. What an honor and a pleasure it is to talk to you. So thank you very much for doing this for us, first off. Uh, I'm going to start here. And this isn't on the paper, but I want to start here. Fear Free resonates with you for what reason? Because some would think what you do is so specific, often, not always, trauma-related. Why did, when you heard about Fear Free, why did you want to jump on board? Well, it's a great question, Steve, and we we may end up getting there even uh, again later in our conversation, but but uh, really, it is the, um, the the whole challenge of looking at the veterinary experience through the lens of our patients, um, and that becomes so pertinent when we're trying to figure out where our patients are uncomfortable. And so much of the time, we want to diagnose problems early in their progression rather than late. And I think the more we are aware of what their experience is like during a veterinary visit, the more honest our communication and the more efficient our communication back and forth between doctor and Mm -hmm. patient become. All right. Now, our dogs are living longer than ever before as a backdrop, and we have more overweight and obese dogs than ever before. You're quite passionate, an understatement, I think, about proactively preserving joint health in dogs. Tell me about that. What fuels that passion? You know, it's a, it's a great question. It makes a lot of sense if you think about it. I mean, when most people think of an orthopedic surgeon, they think of somebody who who drills holes in bones and insists on filling those hill holes with, uh, you know, metallic screws and plates and nuts and bolts, oh my. But, um, but the rationale for doing those things is to restore comfort and to restore function and restore quality of life. And so it's the same for joint health. Is a healthy joint, is a comfortable joint, it's a, it's a functional joint, and it fosters that quality of life. But, you know, osteoarthritis is this disease that wants to, to steal that joint health. And, and, you know, it kind of comes in and sneaks in in the night 
and it, it robs the patient slowly and progressively of comfort and, and ultimately quality of life. And, and when we look at the lifespan study that was done in Labrador retrievers a, yes. a number of years ago, there's all kinds of great things that come out of that study, but one of them that a lot of people missed, and I missed the first few times, is, is that the number one cause of death in Labrador retrievers is osteoarthritis. And, and people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Osteoarthritis is a, is a serious disease, but it's not a terminal disease. And the results of the study would say, wrong. That's the point. It, it is a terminal disease because when osteoarthritis robs patients of their life quality, it prompts these very guttural conversations and decisions in families all around the world about end of life. And so it's really quite quite startling and quite sobering to recognize that this disease we see every day is actually a terminal disease. But, but the good news is that, that there is a huge opportunity for us as a profession to be of such benefit to millions and millions of patients and, and at the same time serve their families, right, to, to shield them from having to have those conversations. So that's what the passion about joint health is all about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and for your average pet parent, it's really becomes observable. I think when it's observable, is the key to catch it somehow, some way, and you know how before then. Bingo! I mean, you've hit it on the head. Is is OA is a progressive disease. And like so many diseases, um, it's best dealt with early, right? Uh, the earlier we can diagnose it and the earlier we can treat it, the more effective we're going to be. But there's this huge misconception amongst the public and, and probably in some cases uh, amongst veterinarians that OA is a disease of the elderly, and it isn't. End-stage OA is often seen in the elderly, but OA begins in young adulthoods. In some instances, while a, while a puppy is still growing, really? um, you know, we have all of these developmental diseases that are the underlying disease that create secondary osteoarthritis. If we can make that early diagnosis, we can implement you know, the early strategies for treatment, um, you know, through keeping the patient lean, through, you know, joint health nutrition, um, through somewhat preemptive or proactive surgical treatments in some instances, then we can incredibly alter the progression of this, this progressive disease. So tell me more about your approach to making that early diagnosis. How, how is it done? Well, it's a challenge for sure, um, but I think a lot of it gets to that that um, client awareness piece, and and how can we prompt them to be looking for those early symptoms and those risk factors of osteoarthritis in in those very early stages? And there's there's a number of ways to do that, but but one of the things that we can do is by using you know, one of a number of different screening tools. And, 
and the veterinarians in the audience, many of them will have heard of things like uh, the CBPI or the Canine Brief Pain Inventory. It's perhaps one of the better known. There's another one called the CODI, which is the Cincinnati Orthopedic Disability Index. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's more. <laughs> there's one called the Coast, which is the canine osteoarthritis staging tool. And then recently, Zoetis actually came out with a, uh, a checklist for osteoarthritis in, in canine patients. And that one's pretty readily accessible. That one you can look up at www.oachecklist.com. But each of these screening tools, they have their advantages, they have their disadvantages, but my advice would be pick one. Pick one that works for you and your practice and your clients and use it. And and what they all have in common is they're training the client to be looking for these early symptoms of arthritis. And And one of the things that happens is it raises that awareness and and it also shifts the conversation where now during that veterinary visit and that veterinary conversation the the topic is oftentimes raised now by the pet owning family rather than by the veterinarian and that's a really important fundamental shift so so that would be my first suggestion for how to make that early diagnosis another one would be um, a tool that all of our clients carry around with them and that's their smartphone and so I oftentimes will ask my clients to shoot little video clips of their pets' activities of daily living. So, so that's playing in the yard, just a 10-second clip. I don't need to see the whole day, but a 10-second clip of the dog playing in the yard. Um, and then maybe specific activities of, of rising from a resting position, going from a stance to a sit, um, if there are stairs in the home, maybe going up and down the stairs, that those sorts of specific activities of daily living. And now I can look at those, and I no longer have to translate the words of my client. I become an eyewitness of the comfort and the function of that pet in their daily living. And that's really helpful. And then I think the last thing is just shifting maybe the way we do our exams is we have have historically been um, very focused on specific maneuvers like cranial drawer sign and tibial compression test and, and specific sort of mechanical maneuvers. But, but to me, what really is the fundamental question is, is, you know, can I do something to help my patient tell me where it hurts? And that's something that, that over the years I've developed is this tell me where it hurts lameness evaluation. So I think taken as a whole, the way we do our exam, the use of video in the home environment, and the use of those screening tools with our clients can help us to make that early diagnosis. Well, I want to talk about those videos for a second and then... I'm curious about tell me where it hurts. I need to know more about that. But yeah. but about those videos, I want to emphasize that because to me, that's kind of a fear-free approach as well. So some number of years ago, or even today at many clinics, many veterinarians do it as they always have. Here, you have an opportunity, instead of pushing a dog, for lack of a better way of putting it, so you can discern what's going on with that dog, medically, physically, specifically, and see what you need to see. 
at a home, you're going to see it much better. You're going to see what the dog does every day. You're going to see the normal life. And that's completely, to me, a fear-free approach. And also, additionally, the client then feels involved in all this. Bingo. Yeah, you, you again, you've hit it on the head. Is, is it, we have to think differently, right? That's one of the goals is let's think differently and let's recognize that, that even doing our best job applying fear-free principles, the hospital environment is not the home environment. Our goal is to make it feel as much like the home environment as we can, but, but we have the opportunity to actually see in the home environment with video. And that's tremendously helpful. And then, you know, we're focusing a lot on dogs today, but, but it's a huge yes. opportunity then with cats yes. because, uh, you know, cats aren't going to walk around our clinic uh, on command and, and sit uh, when we command them to do that. And so it, it's a huge opportunity, especially with the cat. All right. So I want to go back to what you said. Tell me where it hurts orthopedic exam. What is that? Yeah, you know, that's, it is. It's one of my great passions. It, it, um, and we kind of almost started there, but, but it is, it's the result of my own sort of personal journey to, to look at the experience of a veterinary visit, and in my case, a lameness evaluation, but through the lens of my patient. You know, that's just not the way we normally think. Fear-free has prompted us to think that way, but, but that's not the way most of us as veterinarians historically have thought, is what is my patient experiencing? And, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Steve, but you or I would never go to our docs to be evaluated for lameness. We'd go to be evaluated for pain. And our doc would say, wow, you look really painful because you're lame today. Um, but our docs have the luxury of knowing exactly where we do hurt because we tell them. And there's that communication piece. And that, that observation prompted me to think, what can I do differently in my daily practice to help my patients communicate to me where they hurt? And, and it really is this communication issue. And so... It starts with recognizing we don't speak the same language. I speak English and they speak dogish. Mm-hmm. And, and so what do I do with that, right? And so I'll never speak dogish, but can I train myself to better understand dogish? And so when they have subtle behavioral cues, subtle cues in the change of their of their muscle tension or subtle, just subtle body language information they're giving me, am I perceptive enough to pick up on that? And, and again, Fear Free's done a good job of, of helping us to learn more about that because most of us don't have any formal training there. You know, and I've worked with behaviorist friends of mine who've helped me to understand that better. And then the other thing is what can I do this is very consistent with fear-free, but what can I do to change the environment, to change the situation to where my patient is more comfortable, more trusting, and more comfortable of telling me where they hurt? And so I talk a lot about situational comfort or discomfort. And when the situational discomfort is high it can overshadow the physical discomfort. 
so that my patient in that high situational discomfort isn't willing to tell me where they hurt because they're preoccupied with the situation. And so they either play the role of the stoic or they wince at every one of my maneuvers, but in the end, the problem is the same and is I, I don't know where they hurt or I don't even know if they hurt. And what's interesting is this whole journey with this tell me where it hurts lameness evaluation um, was in parallel with fear free. I was unaware of fear free, and and as I our paths eventually crossed, I recognized so much of what I'm doing is consistent with the principles of considerate approach and gentle control and touch gradient that that the certified fear free community will know what I'm speaking of. Yeah, those buzzwords for those involved with Fear Free have been from the very start very consistent, it seems, with what you're talking about. So it strikes me that tell me where it hurts, the ortho exam can easily be applied to uh, osteoarthritis uh, screening exam that might be done during a routine annual exam. So if you can, walk me through how you might do that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a challenging question actually is 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 so much of it first of all is is based upon reading the patient just as as they talk about with fear free is is it's certainly not a one piece fits all approach you have the very gregarious pet um who what you do to create situational discomfort and what is regarded as a considerate approach for the gregarious pet is very different from uh, the pet who is is very aware of his surroundings, very nervous, uh, you know, very is on that edge of of significant situational discomfort. Um, but but it, it, rather than trying to get into the specifics that would fit each and every patient, which probably lends itself more to to demonstration, um, maybe the bigger picture of it it, it isn't. Really, it's so, so much of it actually. It sounds very artsy, but it, it's it's a, it is an issue of the heart. It isn't rocket science. It's it's you know getting back to the things that were part of our youthful desire to be a veterinarian and 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 have this desire in our heart just to be in relationship and building trust with our patients. And, and in many respects, just treating them the way we treat our own pets in our own environment at home. Um, in, in terms of, you know, more specifics, you know, I, I have done, you know, various trainings on the Tell Me Where It Hurts uh, lameness exam. I've got others coming up. Um, I've got just different resources. And if listeners are saying, hey, I want to learn more about that, specifics, where can I actually get my, my hands on that, um, they could just email me at my name is ross.palmer at colostate.edu. Uh, and colostate is just Colorado State merged together, colostate. Mm-hmm. But people could email me, and I'm happy to be put, uh, put them in touch with resources that way. Um, but it, but it really is so much of it is just this shift uh, that is so consistent with the fear-free message. All right, Dr. Palmer, let's shift gears a little bit. We've got a dog who clearly is in pain uh, with OA, uh, and that dog maybe an older dog, maybe not, uh, maybe an overweight dog statistically, but maybe not comes in with, of course, the client coming in as well. 
Is it true that today, as opposed to, I'll make up a number 10 years ago, today we know a lot more, first of all, and also today that if you had 10 dogs that came in, you'd have 15 solutions for them. And what might work for one dog might not work for another. And what I'm getting to is a multimodal approach. Yeah, it's, again very, very accurate. You know, I think back to early stages of my career and our our attitude about how we diagnosed OA and how we treated it. I mean, it was it was almost all unimodal. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of complexity to it. And, and so you're right. I mean, uh, we, again, especially if we can make that early diagnosis, then, then we can implement those early things we can we can start to work on that body confirmation and attain and hopefully maintain that lean body confirmation that has been shown to be so helpful in controlling progression and symptoms of OA. You know, hopefully we can adopt a lifestyle of regular uh, activity but moderated away from extremes. Um, we might have begun a relationship with a certified uh, rehabilitation therapist and, and implemented some physical rehab and some therapeutic exercises. You know, we might be using nutrition to support joint health and joint comfort. Um, and then at some point, we've got to manage the pain. And, and, you know, when it gets to the stage where we've done these other things right, but this is a painful animal, and it's now you know, being robbed of its comfort, its function, and its quality of life. We have to manage the pain, and that's typically going to be, you know, with pharmaceuticals. And, and the predominant mechanism of action for that is, is going to be our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And, and we have to be really careful as to how we do that. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned that is that they're very safe for the majority of animals, but, but when they are used appropriately at appropriate doses, they're not you know, mixed with other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or corticosteroids, you know, we're doing appropriate blood screening, et cetera. Um, for, for most dogs, we're not going to have a problem as long as we're doing it properly. And then sometimes we have to add on top of that adjunctive therape- uh, therapeutics. So things like amantadine or gabapentin, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature. But, but at, at the end of the day, the, the goal with this multimodal management um, is, is pain relief so that we can restore quality of life. Because if, if we can't restore quality of life, quantity of life is at risk. And, and you talked about PT a little bit, and Lord knows I am no expert here, but I wonder if we should have said it the other way around. We, we talked about PT, we talked about uh, other approaches, which include maybe even taking longer walks with that dog. Whatever it is, that combination, it could be massage therapy, whatever combination of treatments we're talking about. Is it the other way around, actually, where it begins with pain relief? Because without that... That dog can't go on a walk that's, say, more than a half a block, you know. But if, if we do the pain relief first, then we can get all those, ultimately, all those other ideas on board. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you actually emphasized that because I think that gets back to uh, really this, this shift in the way we look at the disease and, and the shift in the way we do the exam is, is 
what we used to perceive as pain was unrelenting, daily, you know, life-limiting pain. And if we're more perceptive, we recognize that many of our patients are manifesting this pain, but in more subtle ways. And if we do shift our mindset and we are more aggressive with that pain management, we may see a new patient emerge. And, and that's that therein lies the magic. So let's say I walk in your office with a, maybe not your office, because if I'm seeing you, I'm seeing you often specifically for a problem, but a general practitioner's office with a four-year-old, even a mixed breed dog that is 32 pounds, not a really big dog. The weight is just where it should be. Most professionals, I think, and I could be wrong, don't think about asking the client about pain, don't think themselves about checking certain things above maybe, 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 and maybe not the very cursory exam that would tell them something. Should practitioners be looking more at younger dogs at an earlier age, even younger dogs in great physical shape that aren't overweight or obese? Yeah, I think they should, and, and I think it, it kind of gets back to those, those tools that we have for that early diagnosis, is, is if we have made use of these screening tools, and, and now the client is looking at this checklist, and they're saying, you know, I never would have noticed this before, Doc, but I'm noticing this, this, and this on this checklist. And so had you just asked me, independent of this checklist, is your dog painful? I would have said no. But now looking at the checklist or using this screening tool, I'm questioning if maybe the answer isn't yes. And so, so that's, that, I think that's one of the, the, the keys to those screening tools and checklists is it, 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 redefines how pain might be manifest. I think sometimes we miss it. If we just ask the question, is your dog in pain? It gets missed. Likewise, that's again where that video tool comes in handy, mm-hmm. is we might see things that the owner has not recognized that's unusual. Um, and then back to the tell me where it hurts lameness evaluation is I pay a lot of attention to comfortable passive range of motion. And, and I may discover during my exam, I may say, hey, when I'm in, you know, I have this dog's elbow in terminal degrees of elbow flexion, that's consistently uncomfortable. I mean, your, your dog is consistently pulling back from me. Um, I feel muscle tension building, and that's not normal. I mean, there is pain in this joint. Um, so I, so it, it does. It gets back to that being much more detailed of how we, how we recognize pain. So I know you brought your crystal ball with you. You always do. So look into the future. What are, what are we looking at? Again, I, I, I'm I'm uh, so glad you asked that question today, and maybe not that decade ago that we alluded to earlier. Yes. Um, so. So there really are some exciting things that are on the horizon. Um, you know, for years now, we've been focused on the role of prostaglandin E2, so PGE2, 
in osteoarthritis, inflammation, and pain, and rightfully so. I mean, that's that's given us um, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs designed for use in our target species. But there's other mediators of pain in osteoarthritis, and each of those other mediators, those represent strategic targets for pain relief. They just haven't been pursued, really. Um, and and so uh, what's on the horizon is, is this recognition of those other mediators of pain. And a key one is nerve growth factor, or NGF. And this is a very potent pain signaling protein in osteoarthritic joints. And so in the osteoarthritic joint, this NGF pain signaling protein um, is, is released by the chondrocytes in the cartilage and the synovial, uh, synovial sites along the synovial lining, and it's circulating in these osteoarthritic joints. And, and that NGF that is signaling pain can be bound up and removed from that joint with a species-specific anti NGF monoclonal antibody. And that represents a huge opportunity to relieve OA pain, but through an entirely novel therapeutic pathway. And so uh, the good news is that, that canonized for dogs and felinized for cats, uh, anti-NGF monoclonal antibodies, those are therapies that are now on our horizon. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty darn anxious as, as when those get to us, if those get to us, those represent uh, an exciting new opportunity to relieve pain, restore life quality in dogs and cats, um, but through a very different mechanism of action. And not all of our patients can tolerate NSAIDs, or NSAIDs don't always get the job done. And so this is an exciting new thing that's, that's uh, coming our way. Well, quality of life is something you mentioned, I don't know, 10 times or more in this conversation. And, <laughs> and rightly so. Fear Free is something, it's a Fear Free podcast, so of course we mentioned Fear Free 10 times or more. Uh, so as, as we go now, how do those two coalesce? where it really does make a difference, and that light bulb went off for you and saying, I want to be on this podcast because I want to make a difference. I want to deliver this message. So put that message, an all-encompassing message, if you can, in just a couple of sentences. Mm-hmm. A couple of sentences is always hard, right? <laughs> yes. But, but uh, yeah, it, it um, you know, for me, uh, you know, I've had a, a long career, and but there is nothing in that career that is been that has been more satisfying than restoring quality of life in my patients and and changing their lives and seeing seeing different patients seeing different pets actually emerge from the same body and seeing the owners of those pets just light up like i didn't know this was possible and and so and then merging it with the fear-free, you know, I, I sometimes can't believe what I get to do for a living because not only do I get to restore that quality of life, but the way I get to go about doing it. You know, I get to, on a daily basis, you know, haven't done it since yesterday, uh, I get to sit down on the floor, I get to play with pets. Um, my first goal is to get to know them, develop relationship, um, then hopefully have the privilege of them being comfortable enough to tell me where they hurt. 
And then once they do, then I have this opportunity to to help them live fuller, more enriched lives. And and you know, even as I speak that, it's like, what more would you want in a career than that? And and so uh, you know, a huge shout out to to Fear Free to Zoetis for for making that process so much easier and so much more fun um, for myself and for my team. When I look at early stages of my career, we have so much more available to us for that early diagnosis and for that multimodal management so that we can manage these patients out through their geriatric years. We can do it so much better than we could in earlier stages of my career. And then what I see as I look down the horizon I think it's just going to get better and better. Well, Dr. Palmer, a huge shout-out to you. It's been a privilege talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, to Zoetis for sponsoring this podcast as well. This information is certainly going to be of great value to veterinary professionals as well as their clients. Uh, hey, if you're already registered for Fear Free, be sure to sign up for all the Fear Free happenings, access the new toolbox items, and find all the additional courses at fearfreepets.com. And, of course, if you're not registered, find everything you need to know to get started at fearfreepets.com. If you're a member interested in pursuing practice certification, get more details on the same site under the Veterinary About section. And if you're a pet owner who just stumbled upon this podcast, learn more about the resources we have for you at fearfreehappyhomes.com. This podcast is sponsored by Zoetis Pet Care.